Amen. Thank you, Ruby. And uh, good morning. Thank you for joining us in worship here this morning. And uh, it's a great day to celebrate um, the risen Savior, even as we'll hear the rain on the roof probably throughout the service. Um, Normally, I would dismiss our kids to go upstairs, um, but if you look around, you probably don't see very many. And uh, I'm going to explain to you why, if you don't know this, um, we did cancel um, our kids' worship time for this morning during the service. There's also no Awana tonight, and uh, we actually just this morning made the decision that youth is going to meet via Zoom this evening. And so youth families, you're going to get some information from AJ on that. And, uh, and here's the reason why. Um, God has been gracious to us as we have exercised caution for the last um, 18 months, and we have been largely protected from the spread of COVID-19, and we've sought to do the prudent and wise thing um, when we're faced with challenges uh, throughout this whole process. And uh, last Sunday night, we know now that uh, a few families, several families that had children in our Awana ministry last Sunday night now have a positive case within their household. And so the wise thing for us to do was to not have kids ministry this weekend and uh, to still gather those of us that were not a part of that exposure to uh, be here together worshiping. And uh, we had our early service and we have this service um, out of our commitment to um, being in person for worship. But um, we did also make the decision to be careful um, with uh, the few families that we know now do have COVID cases in their household. As AJ sort of referenced, um, three of those families affected our worship team this morning. And so uh, thank you to, uh, to AJ and, and Meredith, uh, Matt, Aaron, and, and uh, Emmanuel for the work that they did in preparing for this Sunday. Lots of changes um, last minute coming into this Sunday of worship. Um, but I do want to, to remind you, uh, we do want to remain committed to, to doing ministry to gathering together, to, to worshiping together. And we want to be wise and careful in, in how we do that. And so uh, this stands as a reminder uh, to us that um, the disease is real, that we need to take some level of precaution. And part of that precaution is just communication and wisdom um, from each of us. And when we gather together, we're kind of making a commitment to each other to, to be wise in how we gather. And so um, those families that have had um, cases within their household, they, they stayed home this week or this morning, and I appreciate them for doing that. Um, but let's all be committed to safety together and wisdom together to, uh, when we know there are symptoms within a household, be wise, be careful, act accordingly. And uh, we continue to do the live stream for that very reason, because we want people to not miss worship um, because of this disease. Now, ideally, we want to all be in the same room together. And, uh, and I still believe we're, we're moving towards that, and we are going to get there. And we want to be gathered in worship together. And, um, and we appreciate the, the priority that you all have placed on gathering together in worship. We're going to continue to, as elders and staff, uh, try to make wise choices when we're faced with situations. And that for this weekend, the wise choice was to sort of limit our kids and youth ministry in the way we typically do them. Uh, but we're still here this morning, and we will be um, in person uh, next Sunday unless there is something else significant that comes up and we have to adjust. And the reality of it is um, you have been so patient with us as elders and leaders And we appreciate that. We appreciate your prayers. We appreciate uh, your input. We appreciate good communication um, from the congregation to the elders. And we want to communicate well with you about what's going on. And uh, uh, this is something that we're trying to walk through and wade through wisely together. So thanks for your patience in that. Um, Next Sunday night, um, just so you know, the plan was already to not have Awana ministry. So our hope is to be back in person for kids worship next Sunday, um, to not have Awana, which was the original plan. We will have next Sunday night a hymn sing event here in this room. And so that is going to be pulling out the hymnals and just a a night of singing together. So we encourage you to do that. The youth will have an event um, that evening. They are going camping at Fort Mountain, and you could talk to AJ for information about that. Uh, The following Saturday um, on the 16th of October, there is a women's ministry event that's going to be meeting outside in the space between the two uh, buildings. There's a dinner and there's a sign-up sheet for that in the lobby or you can email uh, Ramona or Jess 
for information and to sign up for that. And so we want you to be aware of that. Uh, the other thing, so with tonight, um, there's no Awana. The youth will meet via Zoom, and that means our Fellowship 101 meeting that we had scheduled for this evening is also uh, postponed. And our hope is to do that two weeks from today. But those of you that had communicated with me about your interest in being involved in that, I'll be communicating with you soon um, on those official dates. Um, lastly, I wanted to just uh, give you a thank you. Um, the uh, we communicated to you Wednesday through a prayer request email, uh, maybe it was Thursday, about Emily Hunley testing positive, and she was the first um, that we knew of uh, to test positive, and um, thank you for your prayers and support for them. Uh, Jason texted me this morning and really wanted me to express their gratitude um, from, from their whole family. Their family is doing well, and in fact, the, those positive cases we now have in our church family, everybody is doing well from all that, that we have been communicated with. Um, and uh, Emily in particular, their household is doing well this morning. Um, you knew that the, the prayer request for her was uh, safe delivery as she's only a couple weeks away from delivery at this point. And so we'll continue to pray for her protection and for the baby's protection. But Jason said they have just been overwhelmed by calls and texts and food drop-offs and toys drop-offs for the kids and things like that. So thank you for your graciousness to to their family. And uh, let's continue in prayer for those other families that are now affected by this as well. Um, so we'll turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 verse 37 is actually where we're going to start. We're going to move a little bit backwards. We're going to go through the second part of the passage first and then we'll go back to the first part in verse 33. We're going to talk about six ways to get it wrong and one way to get it right. And the reality of it is, following Jesus, Jesus talks about the fact that there is a wide path and a narrow path. And the path of following Jesus is the narrow path. And so if we follow Jesus throughout, this is our goal for the book of Luke, to follow Jesus and to see what he's saying about the life that follows him. We know that there are more ways to get it wrong than there are ways to get it right. And that's our journey for today. Um, and, in, uh, and essentially, these are six woes. You might hear them uh, refer to that in verses 37 through 54. The six woes to the Pharisees and to the scribes. Um, if you don't typically use the word woe in your vernacular, I don't either. Um, but essentially, the way we're unpacking this this morning is Jesus is coming at the religious leaders of his day for six issues. And we're going to define them this morning as six symptoms of heart problems. Six symptoms of an inner condition, because this, this whole discussion this morning starts with a question of what is clean and what is not clean. Now, we know that if we were to take a cup, let's say I'm at home, and Jess asked me to do the dishes, which is not my favorite thing to do, and I take a cup, and it's dirty on the inside, and all I do is I wash the outside of it. And I put it back on the shelf without doing anything to the inside of it. How do you think my wife responds to that? I thought about trying it this week just to see, but I was afraid that she wouldn't notice and then she'd get really mad. But the reality of it is, if let's say I left something just residue of something in there and I just put it back in the cupboard, what's probably going to happen is something's going to start like growing. You, you leave some residue in a cup like that, you could start growing some mold and stuff like that. It'd be real nasty. And, and then, I come, then she comes to me and said, Tim, I thought you washed the dishes. I thought you washed this cup. And my explanation is, oh, well, look at the outside. Doesn't it look great? It's like as shiny as it's ever been on the outside. It's clean. That's not going to satisfy her. And that's not going to satisfy Jesus in this passage either. That's the very illustration he uses. We'll start in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, let me back up here. Or let me talk about this for a second here. Uh, Jesus, I do believe, is being intentionally offensive. I do believe that Jesus is not just being mean or rude, but Jesus is going to make a point here. And so he, he, is, he is careful in his actions. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he knows that he is going to cause an offense of the Pharisee who's asked him over for dinner. But he's doing that so that he can create the opportunity for this discussion about what is clean and what is not clean. About outside cleanliness and inward cleanliness. 
And so the reality of it is, it's not about Jesus just doesn't have good personal hygiene and didn't wash his hands. The discussion here is about a ritual cleaning where you enter into your house and, or into a house and you go through a, a mosaic form of cleaning in order to enter into a dinner with, um, with somebody. And so for the Pharisee, he saw it as a lack of respect for him and his home that Jesus would do this. And Jesus is like, let me tell you what you are missing in your understanding and application of the law. And so much of the six woes that follow in this passage, so much of the six symptoms of heart disease that we see in this passage, uh, so much of those are built off of this idea of misunderstanding and misapplication of Scripture itself, misunderstanding of God and what God has revealed to us through his law in particular. And so he says to him in verse 39 to the Pharisee, he says, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. There's that illustration. You got a dirty cup. You, you clean the outside. You don't clean the inside. And you say, done. I got it. He says, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. The issue here is outside actions that are opposed to an inward state or, on the flip side, an inward state that is opposed to outward actions. Because what the Pharisees do a really good job of is looking good on the outside. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm looking for. That's the message here. Jesus cares more about the inward state of your heart than what you look like to outsiders based on your outside actions. Now, now, let's go ahead and get one thing right. Jesus cares about what you do also. Jesus does care about your outward actions. But we have to get the order of operations right in following Jesus. We don't fix our behavior, fix our outside, do better, try harder in terms of outward actions in order to gain the love of God or be accepted by God. That's the wrong order of operations. What we do is instead, we accept God. We accept Jesus' sacrifice for us. The good news that says Jesus died for our sins and we can be made righteous by him. We accept that. And with that comes inward change, inward rebirth, a work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts and within our lives. And then out of that flows the changing of outward actions only in response to an inward change that is happening. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's going to expose how the outward actions might look good, but actually the inward state, the inward heart issue is, is not consistent with the outward actions. And he's going to, uh, going to confront that with the Pharisees, through six, or Pharisees and lawyers, through six different woes. And I've called them for this morning, six heart conditions that reveal to us a spiritual problem. And so we'll read in verse 42 and following, and then we'll come back and we'll treat them one by one. Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. You yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the, word of, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be, changed against, may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard 
and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So six woes, three for the Pharisees and then three for the lawyers because this one lawyer was sitting there watching all this happen at the dinner table and wanted to jump in and be a part. So Jesus turned his attention to him. Number one, the verse 42. The first symptom of a heart problem is the wrong view of money. And this is on display through the Pharisees' actions. Here's what he says to them. He says, you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So what were they doing? They had gardens. They were growing gardens. And what they were literally doing is they said, okay, the Old Testament law says I must give a tithe, a 10% of everything that I receive to God. So therefore, in order to apply that law the most carefully as I possibly can, if, if I have a mint, if I have an, an herb, if I have mint growing in my garden, and it has 10 leaves, I gotta give one to the temple. I've gotta tithe a tenth, a tenth of the mint that I grow in my garden in order to be right with God. Now, there's two categories of people that Jesus is dealing with here. You have the Pharisees and the lawyers. And it's helpful as we unpack this to have some, some background of these two categories of people we're talking about. The Pharisees are not necessarily um, re- religious leaders in an official sense. The Pharisees are a sect of people that care very deeply about the law. They're not necessarily teachers in the synagogues. They are just a, a very hardcore sect of people that care very deeply about following the law with precision. And so what they do is that when they look at the old covenant law, when they look at the Torah, the books of Moses, they look and they read things like, well, you should not work on the Sabbath. And they say, okay, how do we know what is work and what is not work? And so they then go to the specificity of understanding exactly where work starts and where uh, rest ends. And so they might say things like, you can lift 10 pounds on the Sabbath, but you can't lift 15 pounds on the Sabbath because 15 pounds would be working, 10 pounds would be leisurely. Or you, they might say, you can walk 300 yards on the Sabbath to go to somebody else's house, but you can't walk 301 yards on the Sabbath because that would be a journey that would be considered work. And those aren't specific applications they make, but that's just the general idea of what they did in order to, with precision, out of a desire to follow God's law as, as well as they could, they came up with all these new, their interpretation of the law. And, and it, it's, it sounds critical to say they developed new laws. It's, it, it, but what they're doing is they're developing new laws out of application of the laws that they see. Their philosophy of following the law is we must get it right. We must avoid any unintentional uh, disobedience to the law. So in order to be as obedient to the law as possible, we're going to make it as specific as possible so that we don't mess up anywhere. And so these guys are the guys that are very, very carefully applying everything to the point of tithing what grows in their gardens, even their herbs. Now, notice Jesus isn't saying, don't do that. He's saying the problem is you should do that. You should give 10% to the temple, 10% to the priest, 10% to the work of the Lord. So tithing is this biblical practice of giving over 10% of what we receive back to God. And and the wrong view of money here is that they're saying 10% is God, 90% is mine. This is the problem. That's not a biblical view of money and financial resources. They're saying 10% of my money is God, 10% of my garden is God, even 10% of my mint is God's, but the other 90% is mine. Because what they're neglecting is they're neglect. the problem is not with the 10%. The problem is with the 90 Because what God is saying to them here in neglecting justice and the love of God, when Jesus talks about neglecting justice, he's standing in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets who when they speak of justice are talking about not helping the poor, not caring for the poor, the hurting, the disadvantaged, the orphan, the widow, the the sojourner, the exile, 
the, the, the disease, the disabled. That's who he's talking about here with neglecting justice. What he's saying is because you've given your 10% to the temple, you walk by a beggar on the street and you say, well, I've already given my 10%, so I'm going to hold on to my 90. You see other opportunities that you can help with, but because you think your 90 is yours and your 10% is already gone to the temple, you say that's somebody else's problem. I've already given my 10. Now my 90 is fully mine. That, that's not a godly view of money. That's not a biblical view of money and financial resources. And so the right view is 1 Corinthians 10, 26. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, including everything in your bank account and my bank account. And so the, the, it's not Jesus saying, don't give 10%. Jesus is saying, 100% belongs to me and is given to you freely for you to manage well. And, and God has, has said to us that first 10% needs to go back into the work that I'm doing through the temple and the priests in the Old Testament, through the church now under the new covenant. And so we should, we should be giving 10%. We should be tithing. That, that's a good thing. Jesus is not against that. That's a good thing. But he's saying where you really get it wrong is not in failing to tithe. Where you really get it wrong is your attitude towards the other 90. If you're not caring for the poor, if you're not loving God with the other 90, then you are revealing a heart condition. Now, let me be clear about something. I don't really like talking about money from the pulpit. It's actually, I guess I could say this just in a universal sense. I don't really like talking about money at all. One of the great blessings of my life is that Jess is really good with money. And that enables me to be really bad with money. And maybe that's not the right view of marriage, but it kind of works for us and it's really helpful for me. But whenever we're in a family situation, I, you know, budgeting conversations and all that, Jess is really good, she's really careful, and it enables me to be less good. And I don't like talking about it in a personal setting. I don't like it when we as elders have to talk about budgeting issues and all that kind of stuff. I don't like it when I talk about money from here. But here's the reality. When Jesus has no level of discomfort in talking about money, because what Jesus discerns and what Jesus knows as the Son of God is that any time he talks about money, he cuts straight to the heart. Every one of these applications he's making, every one of these woes, he's exposing heart conditions. And there are few roads to the heart that get there quicker than the road through our bank account and our money. Because how we react to people talking about money and financial resources really does reveal where our heart is where our security lies, where our trust is, where our priorities are. How we spend our money reveals the state of our heart. And so what Jesus is saying here, the symptom that he is exposing within the Pharisees is this wrong view of money, this wrong heart attitude towards money. And the application for us is clear. It ain't yours. None of it. No matter how hard you worked for it, no matter how hard you saved. The gifts you've been given, the talent, the, uh, the education, the abilities, the mental capacities, the family, the opportunities, all of those things that have contributed to the financial resources that you have received in this life, it's all a gift from God. And he has given you stewardship responsibility over it. But he does not say, hey, give me 10 and do what you want with the other 90. He says, I've given you responsibility. Act as a wise and faithful steward. And how you fulfill that stewardship responsibility is going to reveal where your heart is. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the first symptom that we need to know and we need to discern, how am I utilizing my financial resources? Am I giving to God's kingdom and to God's work? Am I giving to those that are in need? Am I being generous with those around me, first with, with God and what he's doing? Not just the local church, but other ministries and, and opportunities. Am I being generous? But also, am I just being wise? Am I expressing love for God and love for neighbor in the way I utilize the resources God has given to me? We need to be careful to discern how our bank accounts, how our view of the money and the resources we have really reveals the symptoms of the heart. Uh, number two, the second symptom Jesus exposes here is in verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, you love the best seat in the house. 
You love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. This is their wrong view of their selves. They view themselves as more important than they should. The synagogue was their place of worship within the Jewish community of the day. So as they would gather there in worship, the Pharisees, they wanted to be up front. They wanted to be in a place of honor. As they were walking through the marketplace, they wanted to be recognized. They wanted to have somebody call out their name from afar. And see, to be a follower of Christ is to have a, an appropriate view of ourselves, to not think of ourselves as more highly than we should, but to think of ourselves soberly, in humility. And the problem that the Pharisees were seeing is that they were acting in such righteousness and trying so hard to establish their righteous authority as the most mature, the most righteous, the most holy, whatever, and boy, did they want people to realize it. Jesus says of them elsewhere, they love the praise that came from men more than the praise that came from God. These are the people that really wanted to, in a religious setting, look good on the outside. And God is no respecter of persons. And so for us, we have to be careful to think, how are we viewing ourselves? How are we viewing our own education, our own uh, role, our own um, intelligence, our own righteousness and holiness and maturity? Are we starting to view ourselves as more significant than we should? You know, one of the other great blessings that Jess gives me beyond her ability to manage money is um, her view of me and my role. Because here's the thing about Jess, and this really is a good thing. Jess has never, or sorry, one time, one single time in a social setting has just ever, ever claimed to be a pastor's wife. That is something that is Jess has a strong aversion to. When we are out in social settings, and Jess and I are introducing ourselves to people, there's lots of times when a third party, somebody from this church, will introduce us to a friend, and they'll always say, hey, this is my pastor, Tim, and this is his wife, Jess. And that's great. Anybody's allowed to do that. But you're never going to find Jess and I going around town just being like, hey, I'm a pastor, everybody. And this is my wife. She's the pastor's wife. That's not something that we like. It's something that Jess is, in particular, just 100% against. And so I called her on it three weeks ago, a month ago, whenever it was. We were in a setting in which everybody knew I was the pastor. It, it, was, it was a wedding ceremony. And so after the wedding, we were walking back to the, the parking lot in the dark. It was the rehearsal dinner. After the rehearsal dinner, we were walking back to the parking lot in the dark. Nobody could see anything. And we could, and, but we saw that there were some people that were coming and we knew that we didn't know who they were. They were with the, the other side, the family that we didn't know as well. Um, but we saw them. They didn't see us. And as they were walking close to us in the dark, all of a sudden we kind of startled them. And we said, uh, and they said, oh, wait, wait, who is that? And they thought that they knew, every, they knew most people there. So they thought, well, we'll, we'll know who that is. Who, who is this? And Jess goes, oh, it's just the, the pastor and his wife. And I was like, so number one, you, you came clean. You admitted that I am a pastor in a social setting. But number two, the way you did it was, oh, it's just the pastor. and his, Not anybody important that you know. And she's like, well, yeah, I, they don't know us. And so I didn't know who, their names. I know that we don't know them. I just wanted them to know we're not people they know. We're just the pastor and his wife. I was like, okay, so that's how you, that's how you accept being a pastor's wife. But the reality of it is that that comes from a desire to not think of ourselves more highly than we should. Because the reality of it is within the kingdom of God, um, everybody matters. And, and everybody matters within the worship service and within the, the mission of the kingdom. And so like on a Sunday morning, you know, there, I, I stand on stage. The, the camera is on me right now. And so it would be really easy to think of myself as the, the center of everything that's going on. But that's not biblical. That's not right. That's not the way the kingdom of God operates. It's actually all about Jesus. And so we all are significant. And we all are of equal significance. Different roles, certainly. And with roles sometimes comes authority. I, trust me, I believe in authority within the church, within governments, within families, all of that. Authority matters. Oh, the, one of the worst things we can do is think that authority and importance are related. 
as if the more authority you have, the more important you are. That's not how the kingdom of God works. Because we all have equal importance as sons and daughters of the king. And some of us have different roles that require us to stand on stage. And some of us have roles that require us to be on the backside of the camera like Ellis is doing right now. But whoever is sitting at home watching needs Ellis and needs me in order to receive the service and hear from the word of God this morning. And so trust me, this weekend we saw, we had internet problems at the church this week, this week and weekend, and we needed some, some tech support from our tech team. We had, we had people on our worship team dropping out, and we really needed some guys and girls on the worship team to step up and fill some cracks. We need the people of God to come together just for the, the practical application of, of putting together a worship service on a Sunday morning. But even beyond that, the mission that God has sent us on, the reach that the church of Jesus Christ has is not dependent upon one person in a specific role that's on stage speaking to everybody else. You all have more outreach capacity than I do. Because of the spread that happens within a community when 200 people go 200 different directions, into different workplaces, in different schools, in different neighborhoods, and different community organizations. That's where outreach happens. And so the wrong view that the Pharisees had here was of themselves. They thought they mattered more than those other people that got the least desirable seats. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. You know, Jess and I actually had an opportunity this um, somewhat recently to meet somebody that has a little bit of fame, kind of a famous person, and, and we had the opportunity of, well, okay, we know this person is famous. How are we going to treat her? How are we going to interact with her? And it's funny, Jess and I had the same problem because we walked out of that conversation and we were like, man, she probably thinks we're really rude. Because we were trying so hard not to be a respecter of persons, not to make a big deal about the fact that she is well-known and famous. We actually didn't actually talk to her now that we thought, we thought about it later, and we were like, we never like really looked her in the eye much. We never really spoke to her. We spoke to people all around her, and, and we went so far as to be careful not to make a big deal about this person that has some reputation, has some fame, that we probably went too far in the other duration. Now she thinks that we're incredibly rude. But the reality of it is we, we, as humans, we need to be thinking of everybody else is created in the image of God. Everybody, Christian, non-Christian. Everybody has inherent value as being created in the image of God. Uh, n nobody created in the image of God as a human being is our real enemy. We'll get that straight too. The battle that we face is a battle not against flesh and blood, not against other people created in the image of God, but against spiritual wickedness. And, and so therefore, when we interact with other human beings created in the image of God, we see inherent value in every single one of them. Even those that are opposed to us, even those that are opposed to the gospel, even those that are opposed to Christ. Because we recognize that they are not beyond redemption, but that there is there is a, a, a spiritual battle going on in all of society right now for the hearts and minds of men and women. And that person that feels like they're really against us is also a part of that battle. And we are ambassadors of reconciliation. We are messengers of redemption. So we don't see human beings as the enemy. We see human beings as created in the image of God and therefore of value in God's eternal kingdom, and we want to treat everybody, brother and sister, as an equal brother and sister, and non-brother and sister, the lost, we want to treat all of them as an, as an equal opportunity for redemption, for becoming a brother and sister. Okay, so we have the wrong view of money, we have the wrong view of ourselves, and now we have the wrong view of good, the wrong view of what is right and wrong. Uh, woe to you, verse 44, you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Here's what he's saying. Uh, Numbers 19 says that if somebody was to touch either a dead body, human remains, or a grave, that person becomes unclean for seven days. And so, if you were to, in Israel, walk over a grave and therefore touch, make contact 
with the grave, you had to then separate from the community for seven days, and you had to undergo, undergo cleansing before you returned into the community. It was seven days of separation. Uh, but if you did not do that, you could make other people unclean. Kind of the way a, a disease would work. If you didn't take your seven days, if you contacted a grave and you didn't take your seven days and you found out that you inter- interacted with these people, then these people become unclean by nature of your uncleanness. Here's what he's saying to the Pharisees. You're making people unclean without knowing it because you're unclean. That, that, that's the clear, confrontive application here. First, he says, you're wrong about your money. And then he says, you're wrong about your view of yourselves. And then he goes a step farther. This is in your face. When he calls them unmarked graves, he says, you're just as dirty as a dead body. That even by contacting you, the the people that that you are around are becoming unclean by nature of your uncleanness. By nature of your lack of holiness, you think you're the holy ones, the righteous ones, the mature ones that get a place of honor when you are so wrong that actually you're making people unclean by your wrong view of what is righteous and what is not righteous, by your wrong view of thinking that what's on the outside matters more than what's on the inside. You are so unclean in the heart that your uncleanness is spreading like a disease throughout the community. They don't know it. You don't know it, but I see it. That's what Jesus is saying. They thought that their outward actions made them clean while their interior, their heart was decaying. Things they were spreading without knowing it, their wrong view of money, spiritual greed, their wrong view of themselves, spiritual pride, and their wrong view of of right and wrong and righteousness and unrighteousness is spiritual ignorance. All of that was being continually spread like wildfire through the nation of Israel because of the influence of the Pharisees. And then the lawyer in the room feels left out. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. I imagine that this is said with a little bit of, you you know, you would think that if there's two different groups of people, the lawyers are the teachers of the law. That it's not lawyers as we would understand lawyers that argue the law and argue for justice and that sort of thing. The lawyers are the experts in the Mosaic law that then have the role of teaching it to others within the synagogue or other places. So the Pharisees are those that have significant applications of the law. They're obsessed with the law too. They're not necessarily teachers of the law the way the lawyers are the teachers of the law. And so this teacher of the law is saying, okay, Jesus, I'm good with you getting after the Pharisees. Go for it. I'm fine. You can talk bad about them all you want, Jesus. But recognize um, you're talking about us too. Do you mean to do that? And, and he's got just a little bit of, of doubt here in the way he's saying it of, Jesus, do you, do you mean to be insulting us also or are you just trying to talk about them? And Jesus removes all doubt. Woe to you also. Yes, I'm talking about you too. You have similar problems. So he has three woes for them, and we'll see three more symptoms of heart problems. But, but they are essentially, even though they're different groups and the, the intricacies of where they're getting it wrong might be a little bit different, it's the same basic idea here. Misunderstanding of the law, misapplication of Scripture, ultimately a wrong view of God and the way God works with his world. Uh, the first warning sign here, the first symptom is a wrong view of obedience. He says, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Uh, They take the view that they need to expose people's guilt and give them the burden of obedience. And in order to be right with God, you must obey and adhere to all of these commands, all of these, these instructions from the Old Covenant. And so they take instruction from the Old Covenant and they just put it like a burden on somebody's back and they continue to weigh them down, weigh them down, weigh them down. And, and you know, this is actually uh, goes along with the criticism that the modern secular world would have against religion in our day. To say that all religion does is really just heap up guilt and the burden of guilt on people. That that would be one of the criticisms of religion is that that the Bible, Christianity, and other religions just exist to make people feel bad about themselves. Well, the reality of it is, this is what the lawyers were missing. Uh, The law, 
does expose us. It does confront us. It does establish guilt. The usefulness of the law is to tell us we are guilty. And we then need a solution to that guilt. But the lawyers, what they're doing is they're not giving the solution to the guilt. They're just giving burden after burden after burden. And Jesus establishes that by saying, you don't even lift a finger to relieve the burden. Your job is to just heap burdens on the people to make people feel bad about themselves. And you're giving the people a weight they cannot carry. This is the teachers of the law in Jesus' day. This is what they're doing. The way of Jesus is different. The way of Jesus is opposed to that. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, not the burden, not the people that are just putting burdens on. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why can Jesus say that? You know, the lawyers are teaching the same old covenant law that Jesus came to fulfill. What is so radically different to which Jesus can say, all they do is heap burdens on, and Jesus is actually coming to replace a burden with a light burden. Because Jesus is the one that removes the burden. Jesus is the one that removes guilt. We have to be honest to say, what, what the old covenant law does do, it establishes guilt. The old covenant tells you, you are a sinner. And, and that if you don't do something about your sin, then you are going to be condemned to an eternal torment, an eternal separation from God. You will be punished for your sin if something doesn't happen. And Jesus enters into the scene and says, yes, something needs to happen. And it's not just getting more and more weighed down with guilt. That's not the answer. The answer is not to feel worse about yourself and feel worse about your own sin and your own failures. The answer is to let Jesus remove the burden, take away your sin, and remove the yoke of your sin and guilt and give you the light yoke of following him, apprenticeship to Jesus, discipleship to Jesus. It's a light yoke. Why? Because the law says, if I am going to be accepted by God, I must obey. And we still sort of think that way, right? Even if even Christians think that way, even if we believe that we're saved by Christ, we still think, boy, but I got to do good now. Jesus died for my sins. He saved me. But now I better get it right or he's going to be displeased with me. He's going to be, he's going to punish me. He's going to be disappointed with me, whatever. That, that's the legal framework to say, I am accepted by God if I obey God. But, but the gospel flips that order all around. The order of operations is different, as I said earlier. The, the gospel says, I'm accepted, and therefore I obey. Law says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Gospel, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. You see, we're all in this sin problem together. But the invitation is for all of us to come into the righteous kingdom of God, family of God as sons and daughters together. So when we gather here together, again, the person on stage is not the most important, the most righteous, the most pure. The person on stage is the one delivering the law of God and, and telling you, we all stand equally condemned before a holy God. We've all got a problem. It's the same problem. And it's the same solution, the same offer for salvation. And I stand up here, and my, my role, my job is to tell you, I've received it. I've seen it. I've seen the God of beauty, the God of glory. I've seen his grace. I've seen his, res his redemption, his forgiveness. I've, I believe in the resurrection, and I believe in his victory. And you can get in on this too. You can join the family. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you're struggling with today, the offer to come into the family is the same for all of us. Next, he tells the lawyers, you have a wrong view of God and his messengers. He's wrong view of the prophets is essentially what he's saying. Uh, this is a hard one to understand, so let me read through it and then I'll explain it. Uh, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them. 
and you build their tombs. Uh, here's what the lawyers think. Here's, here's what the lawyers think. They think the problem is ancient Israel. All those Old Testament Israelites, they didn't listen to the prophets. They didn't believe the prophets. They killed the prophets. But we're the good ones. We're the enlightened ones. We understand the law. We will follow the prophets. So what the lawyers are doing is they're actually erecting monuments to remember and honor the prophets that previous generations of Israelites killed. So they think they're on the right side of history. They think they're the smart ones. They're the enlightened ones. And Jesus says to them, actually, you're just like your fathers. They killed prophets because they didn't recognize prophets. You're the same way. So stop building your tombs to honor dead prophets when you're looking in the face of a prophet and not recognizing him. And it doesn't take long after that for this, these people to be a part of the crowd that yelled crucified him that was then responsible for the death of another prophet. And the reality of it is Jesus is, is confronting this strongly to say, your, the problem is your wrong view of God and not being able to recognize his messengers. Why? Because they have the wrong view of sin and righteousness they think that sin and righteousness is an outward problem. It doesn't matter what's going on in the inside. You fix the outside of the cup while the inside is clean. Now, that view of your sin and your righteousness is going to lead you to have a wrong view of God, too. And it's going to lead you to have a wrong view of, of a messenger from God who tells you to repent. And you say, of what? I'm tithing my mint. I don't need to repent. Look at what I'm doing. I, I'm only walking this far on the Sabbath. I'm not walking that far on the Sabbath. That would be against God's wall. I, I'm tithing all, everything I got. And then a prophet shows up and says, repent. Repent for your injustice. Repent for your lack of love of God. Repent for your twisting of the scriptures. And they said, no, we don't have anything to repent of. We're doing it right. That's their wrong view of God. Because they think their sin is managed by their outward behavior. And they don't think the inward sin of spiritual pride and spiritual greed and, and, and all of those things going on in their heart. They don't think that's a problem. They don't think they have anything to repent of. So when prophets in previous generations showed up and said, repent, the people didn't repent. Jesus is showing up and say, repent. They don't repent. The Protestant Reformation started in October of 1519, 502 years ago. And it started with a thesis 95 theses, 95 statements by Martin Luther put on the Wittenberg church door. Number one that he put on the list. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of, the, of believers should be repentance. That we actually go on repenting. That we don't just repent and get clean and think, okay, I'm all good from now. But we actually continually recognize that sin comes easily, that temptations come at us, and therefore, when we fall, we need to repent, turn the other way, turn around, and in obedience, follow Jesus, not so that we will be saved, but because we have been saved. Lastly, they have a wrong view of knowledge. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Imagine it like this. You have a, a safe, a room, a, a, a safe room, and there's a key to that safe room. And inside the safe room is the knowledge of God, the, the revelation of who God is in all of his beauty, in all of his love, and in all of his grace. And the scribes, the, the lawyers, the teachers of the law, that's who he's talking to here, they have the word of God. They have the ability to reveal to the people, to open up the key, to reveal to the people all of the beauty that is there, but they have kept that beauty hidden. And instead, they've used scripture to heap burden after burden after burden on the people. All the while, they threw away that key to seeing the beauty. That's, what they're, that's this wrong view of knowledge. They think, as the teachers of the law, they're the arbiters of truth. They're the arbiters of the knowledge of God. And so they're not letting the people see God for themselves. They're not letting people see the scriptures for themselves. They're constantly standing up and saying, no, 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 you're wrong. I'm right. This is what it really means to follow Jesus. And Jesus is giving us the beauty of his word and the beauty of himself to say, no, no, no. These guys, they didn't enter. But now for us, we get to enter in. 
we get to see that beauty is not, is not um, the, that the, the truth of God is not all about just following the law and relieving burdens that way. The truth of God is that Christ has removed our burdens at the cross and freely offers his loving grace to us, and so we can come into his presence in fullness of joy, with peace that surpasses all understanding, with an anchoring hope that allows us to not get tossed to and fro in the waves of this world. That's their wrong view of knowledge. I'm going to close this by looking back to verse 33. Six ways to get it wrong. Six symptoms of a heart issue. One way to get it right. The story of the lamp. Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand. So that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So the problems the Pharisees and the, and the lawyers were facing was this uh, knowledge, the, the knowledge problem, the view of God problem, the obedience problem, the, the view of, of good and uh, right and wrong problem, the self, money, all of those things, the light of Christ brings new revelation. Instead of, G- Jesus says, the lawyers have, have locked this door and they've thrown away the key. They didn't even look in themselves. And Jesus said, you know what, guys? A new plan. I'm here. The Son of God is here. I'm the light that's going to bring light to men. You don't have to rely on the scribes. You don't have to rely on the teachers of the law. I'm going to speak directly to my people through the presence of the Spirit of God that's going to indwell believers through the Word of God illumined by the Spirit of God. Here is Jesus on display to us this morning telling us that the offer of redemption stands for everyone. That the burdens can be taken away. That hope can be restored. Joy can be restored. That no matter the struggles and the trials of this life, if we live in the light, the light shines through us. But he says the eye is the, is the, is the door. The eye is the door by which the light comes. So it says where your gaze is reveals what you're sending out to others. You are displaying to others what you are receiving. And so if you are constantly gazing into the darkness, what people see projected from you is darkness. But if you're continually gazing into the light, not the despairs of this world, not the hardships of this world, not the difficulties of your own situation, but the hope of Christ, the glory of God, the beauty of his redemption, if you let your eye be the door for that light, then what others will see from you is the beauty of the light of Christ come to shine in us. And that's where we'll leave it for today. If your body is full of light, it will be wholly bright as a light with its rays gives you light. If we want to bring, if we want to make a difference, we want to make an impact in our families, in our culture, in our workplaces, in our schools, whatever. If we want to make an impact, we've got to be in the light. Jesus says, you abide with me, I'll abide with you. Jesus says, it's better for us that he go away so that the spirit would come to us. And so the question is, are you gazing into the darkness or gazing into the light? As the band comes up, they'll lead us in one more song as we close our time today. This will be an opportunity for us to respond. Here's a truism I learned from Eden on her bike one day. She was trying to, to go from a friend's house back to our house. I was walking next to her, and, and the road had, was a little bit graded on the side, and so we were trying to get her to be on the side of the road, but also to go straight. But the road was sort of slanted down into the gutter there. And we kept trying to instruct her, no, no, Eden, go, go straight, move straight. But every time we told her to, to bike straight, she looked at the ledge, and she just sort of steered where she was staring. And it's just a truism. You steer where you stare. And so I'm going to ask the band to come up and and sing and lead us in this last song. But I want you to know, where you're staring is where you're steering. That if you want to point others towards Christ, if you want to live a life that honors Christ, stare at him. Stare at the beauty. 
stare at the beauty revealed in his word and revealed in his people and his community. And then, then we'll see the light of Christ. And others will see the light of Christ displayed through you. Let's sing together. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son. To make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away As moons which mark the chosen one Bring many sons to glory Behold the man upon the cross My sin upon his shoulders Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's repeat that. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let's do that verse one more time. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should we gain from his reward? We cannot give an answer. But this we know with all our heart. His wounds have paid our ransom. Amen. Father, we do. We know this. We believe this to be true. That the wounds of Christ have paid the ransom price for our salvation for our adoption into your family. What we could not do or achieve by obedience or righteous living, Jesus achieved for us on the cross. And so, Father, we praise you for the great love you have displayed. We praise you for the opportunity to gather together today as, as a, a resurrection body. We are your body, and your body is a resurrection body, made new regenerated, 
reborn and cleansed by the power of your spirit. And so, Father, we praise you for redemption this morning. Now, God, send us out. Give us wisdom to know what you're doing and what you would have us do in response. Spirit, apply the truth of your word to every heart that we might live in the light this week. And so, we would shine the light into every dark corner of the community into which we walk. Because there's no dark corner of humanity and your created world in which you do not send your believers, your children, as lights to bring the light of redemption into the hearts of men. And so, Father, send us out as lights into a dark place. In the name of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen. Remain standing, receive the blessing of the Lord based on the finished work of Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.